This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. It is a throne speech day today. Premier Kathleen Wynne will be uh, introducing the throne speech. Obviously, it'll be read by the lieutenant governor uh, in the legislature. Uh, She prorogued the House last week. What can we expect? And, uh, well, (laughs) what is the the stated reason and what are the... uh, understated reasons or non-stated reasons for having a throne speech this late into a session. Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML to talk about this. Morning, Barry. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. Uh, Some people have characterized this as a Hail Mary pass from a government that's in trouble. Is that a fair characterization? Oh, sure. Yeah, you don't normally have uh, throne speeches just uh, two or three months before the election. They want to to clear the slates and reintroduce themselves, which in the case of... um, of, of Kathleen Wynne is going to be difficult. People, I think, have a read on her. What they don't have a read on, and I think what probably is motivating her, is that they don't yet really have a full read on on uh, Doug Ford. And I think um, she's doing the best she can. Again, we now have a full set of polls. There's four polls that have now come out since uh, since the leadership, and they're pretty much in agreement. Uh, we at Lispop, lispop.ca, which we have a website that will be providing information during the course of the election about how things are going. But uh, these numbers aren't up yet, but uh, something I'm now working on and will be up in the next uh, couple of days suggests that the, uh, the conservatives have a lead of about 16 points, which tr- turns in not in just to a majority, but a massive majority, perhaps over 80 seats out of 100 and 124. Um, now, but that's all done in the context of Doug Ford still being a relative unknown for most Ontarians. So what I think the throne speech is about and what I think Kathleen Wynne and indeed the whole Liberal campaign from here on till, till June 7th is going to be about is defining Doug Ford. Part of what they're going to do is provide policy ideas of their own. We're going to see that none of these, of course, will come into fruition because there won't be time to, put, to enact any of the legislation that will come out today. Uh, pharmacare is certainly one of the examples. I'm not sure what all is going to be in it, but I think it's going to be very much in the, the direction of more social spending, more, um, more money for health care, more money for education, particularly post-secondary education. Areas which, in fact, the Conservatives and Ford perhaps are vulnerable in, in part because what they've been talking about is cutting the budget without giving any specificity of just how that budget's going to be cut. They're going to cut the, um, uh, cut the carbon tax, is one, the one uh, specific that Ford's talked about. But whereas the Conservatives are going to be talking about cutting and providing less in these social service areas, the Liberals are going to, I think in today's throne speech, being the be- doing the best they can to suggest that they are going to provide services for Ontarians. Whether it works or not remains to be seen. I do think that there's room for Liberal gains and Conservative erosion, but at this point there's an awful lot of erosion that's going to have to take place to bring the Conservatives down from the the very strong majority situation, I think, that recent polls have placed them in. Barry, you just talked about a, a political reality that uh, that maybe the government doesn't really want a whole lot of people to realize. That uh, I'm sure there's going to be, as you say, a lot of spending promises in this uh, throne speech today. But the reality is, uh, when you look at the calendar, uh, in the remaining time, and by the first week of May, the, the, the writ drops, and that's going to be it. There'll be no more business in the legislature. They're probably only going to have time to, first of all, debate the throne speech and then debate the budget that Susan's going to give at the end of the month, and that's going to be game over. Absolutely. This is all about optics. It's, uh, I don't think anyone can seriously suggest that there's going to be significant new legislation occurring now between now and, and the election. Nonetheless, it's all about defining the conservatives as being mean-spirited. I, I'm not sure what language they're going to use. I, I think it's another angle. I'm sure we'll have other opportunities to talk about the election campaign in the in the weeks ahead, but um, I think they are going to do their their damnedest to try to define Doug Ford in as as negative a way as possible. They can't do it by making Win popular. Win is not going to be popular, whatever she does between now and February and uh, excuse me in June. 
Uh, but what they're going to try and do is make Ford is unpopular. Part of it will today we'll be talking about issues and policy. But I think, you know, projecting ahead into the future, I think we're going to see much more in terms of visceral attacks on his personality, comparing him to his brother, for sure, which is not a stretch, uh, but pro also probably uh, comparing him to uh, the, uh, our southern neighbor's president, who, in fact, has his own turmoil. You know, when I was first called by your people this morning, I was thinking that that was the story you wanted to cover, and I guess you're going to be covering it a little later with somebody else. Uh, but what's going on in the States is really getting quite dramatic, and indeed, I think that will continue to dwarf a lot of other international stories between now and Election Day. And my hunch is the liberals are going to throw everything they can at Ford, including trying to... to um, uh, compare him to the uh, to Donald Trump in the U.S. But with what's Trump doing, though, there is a connection there, Barry, notwithstanding the fact that the, the PCs up here may not want to talk about that or admit to that. But when he gets away with what he's doing, and he does get away with just about everything he does, it emboldens other people to say, you know what, this grassroots politics appealing to the lowest common denominator, that's the ticket. It's going on in a lot of countries and in, in parts of Europe and much more excessively than here. I, I'm still scratching my head imagining what, what the Italians were thinking, what some of the other Europeans were thinking. I'm not sure it's going to end well for Trump or for the Republicans, but um, again, it's going to take a while for all of this evidence to come out. And I, I, I don't think that the uh, that Trump is going to be happy as a result of this at the end of the day. But in coming back to the Ontario uh, political situation, I think to the extent that Trump daily portrays himself as uh, an arrogant autocrat and frankly in many ways just an ignorant boor that indeed um, that Ford too uh, can be likened in that way especially if he doesn't watch himself Ford is not somebody who is particularly strong on um, on policy um, and in fact he's already made some statements about uh, cutting taxes getting off the gravy train and so forth that I think are going to I think that's part of the reason why the I don't know what's in the throne speech, but I think the throne speech will be in the direction that it is, that the liberals will promise things that they will probably never have to implement anyway, but that will try to draw the parallel between the fact that they are concerned about the everyday needs of many Ontarians, not everybody. There's still people who are more concerned about tax cuts than they are about government services, but uh, trying to draw that comparison as best they can, because as I, you know, I said a few minutes ago, there's 16 points behind, and that's a huge margin. The, uh, the conservatives have blown, I'm sure I've talked about this in past chats, that um, the last three provincial elections, the conservatives have gone in on virtually even ground with the liberals and in each case blown it. Uh, this is the biggest lead the conservatives will have ever had, 16 points. is not just a majority, but a huge majority. Um, but in fact, the liberals are going to sort of work away and trying to do everything they can to erode that particular situation. And policy is probably the most effective way to do it, given wins clear unpopularity and the fact that, without question, it is time for a change. The Liberals have been in for 15 years. There have been plenty of scandals over that time. And indeed, I think plenty of people are thinking, yes, we're not sure what the Conservatives have to offer, but anything is better than the status quo. That's what Wynne has to fight. And, and that's the dynamic that's at play here, and I find it fascinating to find uh, history repeating itself. This seems uh, an awful lot like what we've gone through a couple of different times in Ontario. Uh, you look at the NDP platform, and Andrew Horvath's releasing that uh, bit by bit, started the, uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, free dental, uh, the, the Pharmacare program, etc., which is going to be more extensive, she says, than uh, what the Liberals are offering right now. But invariably, Barry, that gets categorized as way too expensive. How are we ever going to pay for that? The other end of that spectrum, though, is is the Conservative Party, and you got Doug Ford saying that I'm going to cut uh, government spending. Well, that means cutting programs. I mean, you either, you either fire people, you cut programs, or you sell assets. That's how you reduce sure. government spending. I mean, and to suggest you can do it without doing those three is, is just, that's hot air. We know that, and we've seen that happen with the Common Sense Revolution. But right in the middle are the Liberals, and they don't like Kathleen Wynne. So, I mean, voters right now are thinking, 
I don't know where to go. The liberal hand is not a good one, um, but indeed I'm suggesting this is the liberal strategy and the thing that they're going to play out today in the throne speech, because frankly they have nothing else to do. They will, in fact, come on with sort of frontal attacks on Ford personally um, and indeed being unfair to Ontarians, but they have to sort of set up the predicate for that by talking about some policies where they're going to be more generous in spending for the, um, for the other parties. Look, the NDP, as the perennial third party, not always, but usually, um, is, is sort of in a more advantageous position. They don't have to go on with frontal attacks against the, um, the conservatives. I, I suspect that Horvath will run a much more high, high road kind of campaign, talking about policy and talking about the fact that she isn't going to get into the gutter with the liberals and conservatives. Ford has that penchant anyway. He was doing it during the leadership campaign to basically go on the attack, and that's another way that he's parallel to Ford, to, uh, to, 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 to Trump, rather. Uh, but, in fact, I think much of the campaign we're going to be seeing the liberals and the conservatives being as negative as possible about each other. And the NDP hope, I'm not sure it's going to be all that successful at the end of the day, but the NDP hope is that, in fact, the liberals and conservatives dirty each other up enough that people will just sort of wash their hands with both of them and start moving toward the end, toward their particular party. So I don't think uh, I don't think Horvath has to get into that kind of situation. She just has to hope that there's enough dirt being thrown around by the other parties in order to pursue it. Um, the policies people know kind of what they, where the NDP is at. In fact, clearly, Wynne is moving in the NDP's direction and kind of encroaching upon many of their social issues. Um, and indeed, they may be unhappy with that, but that's the strategy she has she has mapped out. Uh, but the NDP is probably not going to get into the kind of rough and ready kind of campaign we're going to see between Wynn and, and uh, Ford. I, I think it, by, the, by the time we get into uh, June, I think we're gonna, many Ontarians are going to be really fed up with all of this. But you mentioned uh, a couple of seconds ago, Barry, a phrase that we've heard an awful lot, uh, and we're not even officially into the campaign, is that there's a, a mood for change here in Ontario after 15 years of one particular party in government. Uh, we saw the same thing federally in 2005 when Paul Martin was the Prime Minister. There have been Liberal governments for many, many years. And we just got the sense that there was a mood in the electorate. You know what? We just need to change. If you're the sitting power, I'm not going to ask you to get into political uh, consulting here right now because that's, uh, that's a fool's game at this stage. But, but is there anything these guys can do to say, oh, yeah, I know you want change, but you, you should stick with us? Because I, I don't get a sense that there's much of an appetite for that right now unless they hear something incredible in this throne speech today. Um, I don't think that alone is going to work. It's the, the approach is going to be the other guys are even worse rather than that stick with us. I don't think I, the, the fact is I think people do have a read on win, and I don't think there's much opportunity for moving people's attitudes about win. What they don't fully have uh, is a formed idea on, on Ford, and that's what the liberals are going to go out of their way to try to develop through the throne speech and indeed in the, the weeks to come during the campaign that follows. That being the case, uh, I, I mean, is there, a, is there a wild card they can play? I mean, you know, I've heard all sorts of different strategies discussed that, that, that Wynn announces this is her last campaign, there will be a new leader, there will be change, you just got to give us one more shot. Voters going to buy something like that, or are they simply going to say enough is enough? Well, at the moment, with being 16 points behind, I think the Conservatives are going to emerge the winner at the end of the day. I don't think they're going to have the 16-point lead they have now, and I don't think they're going to have as high as 80 seats or more, which they would seem to have at the moment, based on some of the numbers uh, that are um, th that are are floating around. The, the, if there's a wild card that can really shake it up more than anything, this is why I thought that that uh, the Christine Elliott really was the smart move for the Conservative leadership, and why I thought she would ultimately win uh, the leadership is because she was fairly risk averse. She'd been through this before. She was fairly even tempered. Her style was much more moderate, much, I'm not sure she was exactly a red Tory, but she was much more centrist. And the fact is a lot of Ontarians are not plugged into politics in the way that you and I and maybe many of your listeners are this morning. 
that these are people that don't have strong feelings about these matters and aren't really engaged in what's going on now. They know the liberals have been there long enough and it's time for a change. Um, but indeed, though, if there is a wild card, something that could shake it up beyond what I'm suggesting, it's that Ford, I think, is very possible to be mistake-prone, that in fact he can make errors on his own. It's not just enough for Wynne and the liberals to say nasty things about him, although they will, but that indeed if he starts making the kind of mistakes that Hudak, and in another way, I think John Tory ran a very honorable campaign back in 07, but the fact is that he, he got himself involved in an issue that he shouldn't have. That was, goes back to the religious schools. Um, if, in fact, I, now again, Hudak's mistakes and, and Tory's mistake they, previously were a little bit different. Uh, Hudak just basically made extreme statements that were self-imposed. In the case of Tory, it was just a policy idea that, that didn't resonate. But if, in fact, there's going to be something to shake this up and give the liberals at least a shot, or perhaps bring the conservatives down from being in a position of majority government, it's the fact that I think Doug Ford, as I may have quoted to you before, may very well be a mistake waiting to happen. That, in fact, he will say things roughly in terms of being antagonistic. The election campaign is very grueling. Uh, people get tired and start saying things without necessarily thinking them out. I think Ford is much more capable of making mistakes like that than Elliot is. I'm not saying he's going to do it, but when you ask is there a wild card that could shake it up, it would be sort of a, a, a self-imposed mistake by Ford and the Conservatives rather than the, the kinds of charges that the Liberals are going to make about him. I was talking to a political strategist about that last week in the program, and, and the question it was quite pointed. It's looking. Uh, are they going to have to try to control Doug Ford? Uh, because, I mean, you know, as our friend David Aiken of Global News wrote the other day, uh, you know, if they don't do a face plant, they got a pretty good chance of winning this thing, if not a minority, at least, you know, maybe even a majority government. Well, think, yeah, right now I think it's a very strong majority. But I think also that that could change. Um, but, but I'm sure his organizers are saying, Doug, shut up. Uh, don't say anything. You know, go off to the cottage or something. But he's not going to do that. Well, he can't, no, he can't, he can't run and hide. Uh, that, that's the one thing he can't do. Uh, there will be debates. He will be questioned. I think he will probably try to sanitize himself as much and try to avoid. He'll probably be advised to not answer spontaneous questions to uh, the media. I suspect the media will get very frustrated in trying to deal with him. But um, we still have not quite three months, but the uh, certainly a good two and a half months. And I, I, Ford can't can totally go into a witness protection pro program during that period. He is going to have to answer some questions, and hopefully from his perspective, the people around him will basically keep him as, as sober and, and straight on the road and not uh, saying controversial things. He, but he certainly is capable of it. And as I was saying, he was doing it much more than the other candidates during the, uh, the, the very abbreviated conservative uh, leadership campaign. Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Always a pleasure to get your insight into this, Barry. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll uh, talk again, I'm sure, as uh, we get closer to the writ being dropped in just a couple of weeks here, the election coming up in the province of Ontario. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Justice, rather. Michael Tulloch is uh, going around Ontario these days. He's going to be in Hamilton tomorrow. Collecting feedback on the new rules that have been in place uh, regarding street checks and uh, what they call carding in some circles, uh, recommendations he's going to make to the Ontario government. Uh, you know that there's been a great deal of uh, discussion about this and debate about this. We've had uh, advocates for both sides on this uh, from a number of minority groups that say that the uh, street checks unfairly targeted certain minority groups, and they quoted a number of statistics to try to validate that. Uh, we've heard from uh, law enforcement officials that said that, uh, well, this was going to handcuff police and was going to be somewhat problematic when it comes to, to uh, looking after uh, law and order in communities. The new regulations are called uh, the Collection of Identifying Information in Certain Circumstances, or the acronym for that is COI, C-O-I-I. -I. So if you hear us referring to COI, it's basically these new regulations. 
Uh, I know that uh, Police Board Chairman Lloyd Ferguson has raised some serious concerns uh, with uh, Justice Tulloch, uh, asking and asking uh, the Hamilton Chief of Police, of course, Eric Gert, uh, whether or not this reduction in the number of street checks is actually uh, correlated to the fact that we have a huge increase in gun violence here in this community, and it's happening in other communities as well. Uh, the short answer from uh, both uh, the Attorney General's office and from the Chief of Police is, well, it's too early to tell. Um, <laughs> you get a different story if you talk to frontline officers. They'll, they'll tell you some stories, but they don't speak on the record and they don't speak for the police services. Ross McLean joins us to talk about this. Crime specialist, security expert, he's, of course, a former Toronto police officer, and I know Ross has some pretty strong feelings on this. Uh, Ross, thanks for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Good to be with you. Important topic as always with you, Bill. Well, well, it is, and you know, I, I'm frustrated by the fact that you know those who are in the know, those who are making policy about this, seem so reticent and skittish about trying to make a correlation between this. I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me that uh, you know they went from, from I think it was hundreds and hundreds of street checks per year to down to about ten or fifteen, or some ridiculously low number, and lo and behold, there's an increase in gun violence. I mean, come on, draw, connect the dots here. Well, this is what you have to when you have politics and policing, and when you ask questions of, you know, God bless our police chiefs, we need them doing stuff. They're under political pressure. They're basically political appointments today. They're answering to police boards, which the new police act they've just brought in has made more political. And we get to look at crime, not through the, the lens of crime and the criminal code. We get to view everything through the lens of racism. And we start off with the uh, with the view that everything is racist without checking that premise to begin with. And I think that's something that the justice needs to be looked at or be asked. You know, number one, so much of this came up, Bill, with the Toronto Star writing a report when they were having one of their anti-police times and they wanted to stir up the fact that police are racist, and they did their carding report. And they put it out, and the conclusion came that police must be racist based on their data. However, they say right at the start of their own report, you can look it up online, you can still find it, that this isn't the best way really to do it. It's really problematic the way we did this. <clears throat> it's sort of an approximation for how race may play a, play a part. So I would suggest what he should do is ask for a peer-reviewed statistical analysis. We haven't seen one of those yet. What we've seen is politically and media activist-reviewed analysis. And that's yet to come. Uh, yet, you know, notwithstanding the fact that even the Toronto Star said that the survey that they did was not scientific uh, and had a, a great, uh, you know, a deal of anecdotal information in it, uh, the government used that to form policy. Oh, completely. And you'll, you'll hear other claims saying that, oh, this carding, does it really, does it ever really solve a problem? Has it, It's never really been proven to do anything. Well, you could certainly ask Justin, uh, Justice Tulick about the case of Dellen Millard. He was caught because of a tattoo that he had on his wrist that said ambition. That was noticed by someone else when, they, when he tried to test drive another truck. They noticed that. They told the police investigators. They went looking. What did they find? A carding that was put in on Della Millard with that tattoo on it. That's how they nailed Della Millard to help solve that problem, put away a serial killer, uh, basically, for doing it. So guess what? It does do some work. It does help with investigations. Let's look at the missing men that are going on in on Church Street here in Toronto, where we're looking at all these bodies here. There's no carding information that came out of anywhere on, on Church Street because it's all been shut down since 2013 and no one can look at the database. Could that have helped perhaps stop this serial killer before? Had there been seven or eight cards put on him being involved in aggressive assaultive dates with other men? I think it might have been helpful.
Well, and we're starting to hear that in the MacArthur case, aren't we, Ross? That uh, and the investigating officers there have indicated that uh, they're they're hitting a lot of dead ends uh, because there just isn't seem an information track that they can follow, uh, and data is not available. That there may well have been conversations, but none of it got recorded. Right, and uh, you know the police are still investigating what went on Lock Street. Would have been helpful had the police. Uh, had the ability to just uh, easily walk up to people if they see them walking in a group all dressed in black or getting out of one car and say, hey, where are you going? What are your names? Let's look at this. Let's find out what's going on. So that might have helped prevent or investigate the damage done on Lock Street. I mean, this comes down to another fundamental question. What is the police's job? Are they, are they to be out there patrolling the streets, looking and helping to prevent problems? Is that what their role is? Or is their role simply to sit back and wait until someone gets shot, a rock gets thrown through a window, then they're to respond because now they have something they can do. That's not the intention of policing. And I can tell you, there's a lot of people uh, that are dead, shot, paralyzed because, because of this lack of carding. There's just a lot of that going on right now. And, and you know, now we're getting stuck on, on phraseology, or some people call it carding, some people simply call it street checks. Uh, you talk to some of the frontline officers, and I have, and I know you do, Ross, uh, and they're simply saying, look, if we see something that looks a little suspicious, we're skittish now to go up and talk to these people because we're afraid we're going to get called out, we're going to get written up, we're going to, you know, and, and on and on it goes. And it, it just, he said the onus right now is, is, is basically to, for us to simply do nothing. And as a he saw that I've talked to a few officers about this, and their frustration right now is they say, as a, as a cop right now, my job is to be reactive, not proactive when it comes to community safety. No, absolutely it is. And, and to get back to your definition then again about carding, once again, you can go back and look at the Toronto Star report. You know, there's series on carding and how, and how this is done. And you find out that, guess what, it's not just carding. They, they highlighted a, a number of cases that took place at Toronto Community Housing, where, of course, we got, we got drug dealers, we got shooters, we got gangsters, we got stabbings going on everywhere. But guess what, that is private property, and the police have been given a letter at that time to enforce the Trespass to Property Act on TCHC property. That means they can ask you what you're doing on a property. That's not carding, that's not arbitrary, yet it's being written up as arbitrary. So there's a lot of playing with games here on definitions, and the problem, as I said to you before, is we're going to end up with people having, uh, being street lawyers, trying to argue with the police as, as to whether or not they can stop them when they don't know all the different reasons why police are entitled to stop you and talk to you. Here's the thing I'm finding problems with, and I'm, I'm not a cop. I mean, you know, I, I talk to people like you that are experts in this field and, 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 you know, people involved in Hamilton Police Services in this community for many, many years. And, and I've got a great deal of respect for people that try to, to enforce and, and maintain public safety in our streets or in every city. But here's, here's the concern that I've got is when you have something like this, uh, I'm not going to dispute for a second that there will from time to time be abuses uh, where somebody does get stopped and, and, and for whatever reason. Uh, because there are some cops that may be a little headstrong, just as there are people in every other business that, that aren't as good as their job as they should be. But here's the thing. What about the message this sends to the bad guys? Okay, when, when this is going on, they know darn well right now that, you know what, I'm not going to get stopped or frisked. I can carry a sidearm. I can carry a gun down the streets on King Street in Hamilton or down Church Street in Toronto because they're not going to stop me. 
because they're afraid of what's going to happen to them. So I can go, I'm free to do this right now. As long as it's concealed, they don't see it. This is going to happen. It's, it's, you know what it's akin to, Ross? It's like if they announce, you know what, we're pulling the ride programs off the street because we don't think it's, uh, it's cost-effective. How much, how much is that going to impact on drinking and driving? The people that are going to do that are going to say, hey, I can get away with it now. And the same well, thing's happening here. Well, you, you bring up an excellent point. You know, we're all focused on the police doing all this uh, documenting and stopping you without your permission and keeping a record in a database. Well, as we all know, Facebook does that to you. Your local library does that to you. As you just pointed out, that happens on ride checks. You can get stopped uh, arbitrarily. The, the bylaw inspectors that come by the front of your house and just decide to rip open your garbage bag and look at it and document what's in there, then go up and give you a ticket, are doing it what? Did they have a, a reason to look at a suspicious garbage bag? Did they have to fill that out first, or they just get to go do that to you? So we get documented all the time when we're out in public, and we've got no say in it. There's a database that's kept on it. But in this particular case, when it comes to life safety and, and our community standards, we seem to be bending over backwards to do this wrong. And let me say something here. If you just said, sure, things can be done wrong. You can have bad police. Deal with them. But the real problem that I see with the shootings and the stabbings and the homicides and the drug dealing is guess who the biggest victims of that are, Bill? Who is that? Is that going to be, uh, let's call it the waspy section of town? where the rich people live, if you were to go into a church, because let me tell you, I go to a church that's in Toronto in one of the worst areas of the city, and I go in there and I see single mothers who've, who've lost their sons, they've been murdered, there's a guy in there who's in a wheelchair who was shot going to a party one night, he's paralyzed now, there's a girl who limps with a bullet in her leg for going around, and you know what, the, uh, the bullets didn't care that the fact that their color was black, they just didn't care. You know, we're not calling the criminals racist, but we're calling the police trying to stop this havoc being wreaked on our society racist for trying to deal with it in areas where this crime is just horrendous. Well, you just had another example this weekend, didn't you? The bowling alley, you know, with a couple of innocent people shot. They just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time because people are carrying guns because they know they can get away with it. Absolutely. I talked to, a, to an intelligence detective about three years ago this was going on, back when Toronto was had had the rising numbers coming with the shootings. And he told me he was just leaving. He says he's going back to uniform, he says, but my wife is going into, uh, into the intelligence unit. And he says, I told her, treat every one of them that you approach like they're armed, because they likely are, because they're carrying now. What they used to do, and people can remember this from the news reports, when they did a raid in, in Toronto here in our Toronto community housing, they'd go in, they used to have gun stashes where they'd have a gun or two or three, and they'd have them stashed in different places in the property. So if they needed one, they'd send a signal with the tip of the hat, a, a hand sign, someone would run and get the gun for them because they didn't want to be caught with the gun. But now they're not worried about being caught with the gun. So now everybody's carrying. And that's why we're seeing these random shootings at clubs, bowling alleys, concerts, out in the streets, downtown Hamilton, broad daylight, you see them. They're caring because they're not going to be stopped. So where, where's where's the solution here? I mean, you know, the justice is going around talking to folks, and I'm glad there's public involvement in this. I get that. And and, and I've talked to some of the folks, and I know you have in Toronto, Ross, and talked with some of the community groups, and, and they're saying, you know, something, maybe it went a little bit too far. We need to do something about it. But it seems that every time somebody pushes against something, as they did with this idea about street checks, the, the immediate government and political reaction is to go to the polar opposite and say, okay, we're not going to allow this now. And it's and I know they're going to come back and say we we never disavow you you can still do it no you can't 
because they've made it that much more difficult right now for uh, an officer to approach somebody who they feel is doing something or being in acting in a suspicious manner. Uh, you know, it, I'm, I'm concerned right now about what's going to happen. And the fact that those numbers are down considerably doesn't tell me that the streets are more safe. It tells me that the police are not allowed to or not inclined to go and do those sorts of things because they're going to get the, not only their wrist slap, but I mean, who knows what's going to happen as a result when they're doing it many times with the best of intentions to say, I think that guy might, or that individual, whoever it might be, may have an arm, a firearm, may be involved in something, maybe just through some rocks, through some windows. Uh, but you know, unless I can show that I was there when it happened, I guess I can't do anything about it. Oh, that person, uh, answers to the description of somebody who was just seen carjacking, a, a, you know, a couple of cars down at the, you know, the center mall, but I can't approach them. Where does that leave us? Yeah, it leaves us in a terrible place. And, and, you know, I've, I talked to, uh, some parents, at least three parents that I know, like I said, they're poor, they're in tough areas. Uh, many of the times they're just immigrants who are just new to the country. They're, they're trying to get along. They've got the young kids. They're working two, three jobs and they come home and they hear a bang at the door and the police kick in the door. They don't know what's going on. They go downstairs, uh, grab their son. They arrest him, uh, pull out a handgun he's got down there and charge him. And then they would come up to me later and say, like, like Ross, what's going on here? I did, I didn't even know. Like, who who gets involved and in, in, gets my son involved in these things? And of course, these people don't have a chance against the gangs who are picking on their sons while they're away working two and three jobs at a time to do stuff. And and the police are left to come and go do this. When I'm sure back in the day, if you will, parents would have liked if you're if you're a kid out mucking around somewhere. You're in Hamilton, it's out late, and you're, you're, you're drinking your six-pack of beer when you're 14 years old, and you go to throw a bottle through a window and you miss, and the police come up and grab you, and they, they document this and they take you home, you thank the police. And that made a change in your life and your behavior. But now that sort of stuff doesn't happen. You don't get a chance to, to catch these kids and, and help straighten them out and help the parents who are off working hard in these poor areas. Like I said, it's very easy for some of these politicians Queen's Park and Ottawa and everywhere else uh, to sit and write these regulations. It's a little bit different on the ground where kids are getting shot, killed, stabbed, and parents are being left going to funerals uh, for their children for no reason at all. How tough is it to be a cop these days with this going on? And and you know what? I go right up to the top because, I mean, uh, I've talked to Chief Gert about this in Hamilton. Uh, and Chief Saunders has come under an awful lot of heat, of course, in Toronto uh, for the way his officers have handled certain investigations and certain circumstances. But the reality is, if you've got some segments of the community that are saying, back off, don't even approach us, don't even talk to us, and then when something happens, when a crime is committed, they're the first ones to raise their voices and say, how come the cops aren't doing anything? Well, I mean, and this is the thing. I mean, the, you know, the term for this is, and it's sort of divisive, and it goes against the cops calling it FIDO, right? Forget about it, drive on when you see something, if there's no real reason to do it. But that's not really what's happening. What's really happening, and I've talked to these cops different times across the city at different places, and I've asked them about this stuff, how they're able to do their work. And what they say to me, almost to a person, is, you know what, this is the type of policing they're saying that we're supposed to deliver. We're going to deliver what they're telling us they want. That's what the city wants. That's what the city's going to get. So if, if that's the way we want to really run this, the police are willing to do it. If, you know, these new carding regulations want to say you can't do anything unless you've got you know, reasonable probable grounds to believe and you can't uh, be accused of doing anything. They, the police are fine with that. We'll take our paychecks. We just won't go out of our way to, to do any work because you're telling us not to do that. So they'll just follow what they're told to do. 
But but what's that doing to community safety? And well, we've already seen the stats, and, and I know the Toronto numbers are, are alarming in certain areas, as they are here in Hamilton. And I'm not suggesting that people are running crazy on the streets and doing weird things, but there are crime. The, the gun crime is up. There are other crimes that are, are on the increase right now. There, it's it's an unfortunate trend, and it's a scary trend to see that that's happening right now. And and I'm the sort of guy that in, living in the city in this you know my hometown most of my life never thought I'd be the person that would be concerned about gunplay going on in the streets and that happens with more and more regularity now and you know the police is simply saying what do you want us to do about it? you just told us to back off yeah look at I mean look at that young Muslim man with the controversial his controversial death came out of his mosque got into a beef with someone in the street next thing you know he's shot. Now we've got the police and the paramedics and everybody else being investigated, but we've kind of lost the idea about what about the guy who's walking around carrying a gun on the streets of Hamilton? Like, why are you doing that? You're carrying it for one reason, either self-defense or offense. And if you have it, you're going to use it. And people are going to end up dead. And as you said, the other night we had that young woman at a, at a, at a bowling alley shot. She's just out doing a birthday party, probably, maybe with kids or who knows what or something like that. She's dead today. So... You know, I think that the justice really needs to weigh this off. This is one of the co- one of the things I saw. Is he's supposed to look at the cost benefit analysis of carding? Was one of the ways I saw it written up. Is what his analysis is supposed to be? Well, go go line up all the victims, the mothers uh, with dead sons, dead daughters, the people in wheelchairs, the paralyzed people uh, who had who were innocent victims of all this. Forget the gangbangers who are killing each other. Just the innocent victims who are taking bullets and knives and being stabbed and kids whose lives are forever altered, and ask them the cost-benefit analysis of what would have happened if they could have helped to stop this. I mean, I think that's the real part that needs to be weighed. Not the hurt feelings of some snowflakes, uh, quite frankly, who, who want to rely on faulty data that has not been peer-reviewed. But, you know, this justice has got a hard job, and uh, I hope he'll do a real good job of looking at it and trying to balance it to keep communities safe. Because those are the people I fear for, Bill, who are sitting at home, now worried about are their kids going to come home tomorrow that's what we have to worry about well yeah because look at not too long ago we hear stories about gun violence and say well that's that bad end of town you know that's yeah we expect it to happen there with those people it's happening in residential areas right across the city now in your city and my city and and you know we we i think deserve some answers as to how we're going to do something about it yeah and police used to be able to track that so what happened before is you could track where your crime was because, and once again, bad, are there bad neighborhoods? Yes, there are. You know, define bad, use whatever pejorative you want. But let's face it, these are areas where you're more likely to get shot or stabbed or robbed if you go through them. And what the police would be able to do is look at where that community is, where the local school is or where the local mall is, and guess what? You'd see the crime all along that corridor, if you will. And you'd see it off of uh, the subway routes and the bus routes. You would see where the crime is because the bad guys, that's how they get around. But now, because they're not scared of carrying, you're all of a sudden seeing the, the shootings and the stabbings and all these things taking place sporadically all over cities. It's not the same uh, ability to track them because people are carrying them now. And I said the other part about this, we're talking about the shootings. I've always been concerned, we've talked about this before, the carrying of knives and the number of our young people that are going to schools and being threatened with knives and being stabbed. It's weaponry. I, it's weaponry. I know. Ross, we got to break it off at this stage. We're kind of short on time. Uh, we'll stay in touch, obviously, as they try to come up with some sort of a solution to this. Always great to get your input, though. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Bill. Crime Specialist Ross McLean. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. City of Hamilton is... Uh, 
trying to figure out just how the downtown is going to grow. There's some wonderful stories about the investment that's gone on downtown. But uh, with uh, progress and uh, with investment and with development uh, come concerns about basically how it's going to look, how it's going to happen. Well, to that end, a new downtown secondary plan is going to be presented. Uh, that's actually going to be presented to the public today, but the planning department is going to debate it a little bit later on. Uh, the person who's probably going to impact the most is the councillor for that area, Jason Farr, the councillor for Ward 2, the downtown area, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Councillor Farr, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've had discussions with some of the folks from Burlington City Council, Mayor Goldring and uh, Councillor Ward, about uh, some high-rise projects that are going on. I know you're familiar with the debate that's gone on. They've actually gone to the OMB in that. And, and again, it's the same debate about how we can grow it. I actually had one tweet last week from somebody that says, thank heaven we don't have that in Hamilton. We're about to, <laughs> uh, with the, of course, about the the story we had about the old CHCH property and how high that building's supposed to go. Does this secondary plan address some of those concerns, Jay? Oh, I think greatly. I mean, what we're doing with the secondary plan is going above and beyond what we currently have in place with the secondary plan. Some of the tall buildings that we've seen and even, frankly, celebrated in the last few years, Bill, in the downtown, uh, were the direct result of a committee of adjustment approvals. So they sought variances and a committee outside of council, no councillor sit on that committee or the mayor, uh, received approval to go to the heights that they've gone to. And, 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 and again, without, if any, there was very little protest, but, uh, you know, in the process of building these committee of adjustments, uh, approved, uh, heights and buildings, uh, very little, uh, impact at all as far as residents uh, contacting my office. So while that strategy has seemed to be effective, it certainly is not the kind of strategy you want, especially in the growth district in the city. And so we have been spending several years now putting together a more robust secondary plan, which of course is the approval uh, scenario for all future builds for that uh, area of the downtown, for the growth area of our city. But you got a balancing act here. I mean, you want to promote investment, you want to improve development, improve, and, and, and that's starting to happen. Uh, but with that come cons- some concerns about, first of all, what it's going to look like, and we should get into that, and about building mm-hmm. heights, et cetera. Yep. Uh, the other, and I know it's been raised by a few community groups, is affordability. In other words, people will still want to be able to live there. Uh, you know, you don't want to say, I'm sorry, if you don't make 200 grand a year, you can't live downtown. That's, I, I'm just picking an arbitrary number, but I mean, there has to be some concern for affordability. How do you balance those? Well, that's where you need to embed it into policy. And so, you know, some people lately have been holding up one of the maps of the many maps that are going to be associated to this document, which is probably going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand pages long in about a month when it comes to uh, planning committee and being released today. I'm speaking generally uh, to you today about the plan bill because uh, probably at some point in the next few minutes, it'll be public. And that's something we've done well ahead of uh, most agenda items. Usually we release them three, four days before the uh, planning meeting. I asked and received uh, permission from my colleagues to get it out a month ahead of time because there's lots of people that want to talk about just those things that you've just mentioned. And what we're going to find embedded in the policy are uh, council, should they approve the downtown secondary plan, uh, addressing those issues, particularly housing, but heritage and heights associated, so zoning rules associated uh, to getting you the heights that uh, we're seeing on that one map, which just shows heights. 
Uh, we have a tall building study that's part of the approval, too. And uh, one of the big pieces that I've been working on for probably over a year now in the last uh, little while, you may have heard me talking about at the end of the last planning committee meeting and before there was a public meeting that happened uh, about making sure that we're inclusive and that we embed in our policy uh, uh, some inclusionary details and, and uh, rules that must be followed to make certain that we address the issue of gentrification, as you just noted. And I, again, I can speak generally to it now, but I can assure you that uh, in the coming minutes when we release this document, I think a lot of people who have also shared those concerns uh, should be satisfied and, and uh, be impressed that for the first time in Hamilton's history, we have a very progressive and a very inclusive law, essentially, around uh, uh, our secondary plan and uh, building heights. But, but I, I guess the concern here, and, and maybe we're getting into wordsmithing, but I mean, it's going to be part of the debate and part of the discussion, is, is one person's progress is another person's gentrification. I mean, sometimes it's in the eye of the beholder. Sure, but you know what we have now is uh, somewhat of a policy in place that says, let's say hypothetically, uh, uh, developer A comes along, uh, buys a surface parking lot that uh, also includes some buildings that have been purchased for an overall development, and in those buildings that uh, were purchased for this overall development, you might see a demolition, and what they may be demolishing is some affordable units. What this policy is going to speak to is making certain that those people paying those affordable rents are made whole, taken care of, uh, and and that's built into the approval process. So unless they can uh, make certain that they return to the finished product and have a brand new unit at that same price point, uh, or they're uh, in the area that they're living and and, uh, want to stay in, that they're taken care of through policy and procedure, um, then that, that, that approval likely will be denied. Certainly, if I'm on council, I would deny that because if we're embedding it into the policy to be inclusive, to make sure we take care of the people who are already living affordably in the downtown core, uh, I think that's an important thing. So what you're saying then is if, if there's a, a rundown ramshackle unit right there, and you've got a few of those in that area, uh, and somebody says, okay, I'm going to demolish that, I'm going to build something else, that those tenants that are living there currently would be given the opportunity to live in the new building? Absolutely. There'll they'll, they'll be policies in place. But you know the like, concern like is, well, I was, you know, they before. were paying 700 bucks. now it's 1400 bucks a month, they can't afford that. So that's what we want to address, and that's what we're going to see when this document is released today, just how we can address those issues. And like I say, I mean, well, I, I can only speak to it generally. It's not a public document yet, and we're minutes away from it becoming a public uh, uh, document. But that you'll, you'll be able to see, and maybe we can even discuss uh, in, the, in the coming days, exactly how those uh, policies are put in place. And again, I use that word policy. It'll be part of the approval process, where it's, it's not necessarily... Uh, part of an approval process now. This downtown secondary plan is going to be very, very progressive and very inclusive, the likes of which in secondary plans the city has never seen. And these are the kinds of things we're addressing. We're also addressing, Bill, a great design. So some people are worried that there's going to be just 30 stories of straight-up crane-your-neck high-rise buildings. We have policies uh, embedded in this uh, secondary plan that actually speak to, and through a tall buildings guideline that is expected to be approved on the same day of planning committee that makes sure that uh, the design is uh, crucial and so that things like setbacks and and, uh, the quality of materials uh, actually uh, work 
with uh, the maximum appreciation for the surrounding area. So it's a comfortable uh, build. It's it's aesthetically the you know the kind of build we want to see in our downtown, and those sorts of things are appreciated. And heritage, as you know, Bill, and you and I have talked about heritage a number of times. We put in the last five years over nine hundred buildings on the. Uh, list of uh, buildings of uh, cultural and heritage uh, value. And so we're already at a point downtown where we've recognized in the downtown core, in the same footprint between Cannon and Hunter is what we're talking about, essentially Wellington to Queen Street, so not all of Ward 2. We've already put into place, we've already identified those uh, uh, buildings of cultural and heritage interest. And so we can inform even greater protections through policy with this secondary plan in a month from now uh, that that uh, can 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 meet those and and surpass those heritage standards uh, like never before. The other question to that, of course, is it's it's well good on one level to say, hey, we're going to preserve these heritage buildings. But uh, I guess the you know the second question, maybe just as important is, okay, what are you going to use them for? Uh, preserving them for the sake of preserving them is it may be a laudable goal, but at the same time, uh, you'd like to think that somebody's going to find an effective reuse for some of those buildings, and that's not always the case. Uh, no, it's it, well. I mean, see, the the thing is, when you put through policy um, um, heritage protections, then you set into motion upon development applications things like holding provisions. You need to go through all of the steps necessary through those policies, whether it's the Heritage Committee, ultimately Planning Department, uh, Planning Committee, and then the Council Approval, uh, to move forward on the project. How are you implementing the heritage, whether it's an adaptive reuse or whether it's a total restoration or somewhere in between? And we hold, we put a holding provision in place uh, to ensure that no demolition takes place until such time as all of those heritage attributes are addressed as it relates to the development that's being proposed. So, and again, we're embedding this into policy, into rules. So you can't just look at one map. You have to look at whether it's heritage or whether it's the heights or whether it's even the housing. You need to put uh, a framework in place that uh, looks at uh, various aspects of policy, how they all blend together for for applications and projects to proceed. All right. I've got a couple of minutes left here. What about building height? Because that's the contentious issue in Burlington. Uh, We had Steve Robichaud on the program months ago, of course, from your planning department, and he was trying to explain exactly what was going on. But at that time, they were still crafting this policy, so we didn't have anything definitive. Uh, Mm -hmm. the, The rule of thumb in the past has usually been uh, for buildings in the downtown, they can't go any higher than the escarpments. And and uh, now, as to how many floors that is, I, I'm terrible at math, but I'm guessing that's uh, probably in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 stories, something of that nature. Uh, there are those that would love to go a lot higher. Uh, a lot of people in this community have a problem with anything higher than that. What's the status and what's what's going to happen with that? Because obviously well, uh, people are going to want to build. I mean, and the, the, the CHCH property comes to mind right off the bat. Yeah, well, what I can tell you is that that will be maintained. I mean, again, it will be a public document in the coming minutes. But uh, well, let's not. If it's a couple of couple of minutes, let's not split hairs. I mean, you yeah, know, I am actually revealing more than I, I like to wait until the public has an opportunity, at least, to see these documents. But I, I can tell you that that you're right. We are splitting hairs. It's just minutes away, so I'll stop referencing that. But yes, I, I can tell you that in our secondary plan for the downtown, that will be maintained. That escarpment ceiling, you will see a number of zones highlighted as as it just relates to the height map, uh, the ability, should all the provisions and policies be met, 
uh, for buildings to reach that height, whether it's 30 stories or the ceiling. Uh, and, 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 and what you'll have an opportunity to see in the coming days is all of those, how those, all those policies relate to getting to that maximum height. But again, they're maximums. It's not a, a one map. It's several different conditions that need to be met to get to certain elements such as height. And height certainly, as you said, Bill, has uh, been a paramount issue for some folks. They've been talking about it, but I, I'm, I, I'm hopeful that in the coming days, they won't be looking exclusively at one map but instead embedding the principles and the policies that will have to be adhered to for any application on, on any height, to be, to be frank with you, uh, to be moved forward and approved. Some of those community voices have raised some legitimate concerns. I, I, I know that uh, Sean Selway's been on this program as well. He, he lives down in that area, and he's uh, talked about this extensively. Others made presentations uh, before you guys finally carved this in stone to make a presentation to council. Uh, but I was troubled by the fact that you still had a number of people there that seemed to think the developers are the bad guys. Uh, is there an understanding on in your heart and in council's minds that uh, the developers are partners, not bad guys, when it comes to, to how cities grow? Well, I'm glad you mentioned it. I, I don't quote uh, Bob Bertina often, but the one time uh, <laughs> I do is on this very matter. And Bob said it years ago when I was my first year uh, as a councillor. Um, without outside investment, outside developers doing what they do, we couldn't do it on our own. We can't use taxpayers' dollars to, to fulfill the density targets that are imposed upon us by the province and to basically uh, design and develop our city the way we should be designing and developing our city, developing up and not out. We've, we've extended our urban boundary, I think, to the extent it needs to be. And now we need to be start thinking smartly like most good Canadian cities, North American cities, and with through good design, heritage preservation, and being inclusive and keeping people who can afford to be, uh, who are affordably living downtown, living downtown through policy, then we ought to do that. But we can't do it on taxpayers' dime. So uh, to your question, I would suggest that for the most part, not always, sometimes things go south, but for the most part, almost always, they are a partner. And we expect that they want to continue, and we've talked about this, you and I, many times in the recent past, to make the investments here in Hamilton. It's a great place to invest, particularly in the inner city and the downtown. And now we're putting policies in place. So both sides are absolutely sure on what we can appreciate uh, in the future as it, as it comes to developments at the various parcels that are identified uh, between Hunter Street and Cannon Street and Wellington Street and Queen Street. Downtown Councillor Jay Farr, as usual, Jay, thanks for this. Uh, we'll probably get you guys in for a roundtable to discuss some of the fine details on That'd this. But uh, for now, appreciate the oversight. Okay, thank you, Bill. Downtown Councillor uh, Jason Farr. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.